Welcome on in to the GIE Media Podcast Network and another special episode in the annual Growing Matters Be Sure campaign. I'm Matt Lowell, a managing editor with GIE Media, and I'm joined today by Dr. Katie Savinelli. Katie is Environmental Stewardship Team Lead with Syngenta. She is an entomology expert, and she is a return guest making her second appearance in this series. We talked last year about what turf pros can do to provide the best habitats for pollinators. We dive a little deeper into that topic this year with some hints and tips from the Growing Matters Coalition. We also talk a little bit about what Katie has growing in her own garden, how she keeps the deer away, how she deals with certain infestations of pests, and what you can do to do the same thing. Before we get started, this growing season and every growing season, the Growing Matters Coalition wants to remind applicators, golf course superintendents, and turf managers to follow best management practices when using neonic products to protect pollinators. And now, Dr. Katie Savinelli. Katie Savinelli, welcome back to the podcast. How are you doing? Uh, Well, first of all, thank you for inviting me back. I guess I did all right last year to be invited back for a second (laughs) time. I also wanted to uh, mention I live in North Carolina and we have 80 degree weather here today. And there have been so many pollinators flying around. There's so many butterflies and bees. And in fact, where I work right now, I have a big office window. And sometimes I get very distracted when I see all the insects flying around because I'm so fascinated. And I think last year I had just seen a monarch butterfly. I haven't seen any this year, but certainly hoping and looking forward to seeing them again as the time goes on. There's so many great cities in North Carolina, Greensboro, Raleigh, Durham, Wilmington, down by the coast, Asheville, over by the mountains and, and pollinators everywhere. You're saying that you get a little distracted, especially now that it's 80 degrees, now that it's spring, everything's flying around outside. I have to imagine you would much rather be outside working with them than inside talking with me and, and sharing some tips. Well, he should, I'm at work right now, so I should be working, but I agree. It's, it's, it's the one nice thing about working from home over the last year is that you can slip out every once in a while and go and look at things. And I take walks a lot and I take my camera with me and take lots of photos. So that's always fun. But yeah, it's certainly a beautiful time of the year. And what's really important for me this time of the year and what I do at my house is I have lots of different flowers planted that are blooming right now. I have native plants. I have, um, you know, ornamental type plants, but the bees and butterflies and even the hummingbirds love all these plants. So I really you know, go out of my way just to make sure that there's plenty of food for the pollinators right even outside of my house. And before we get into some general reminders, what are you putting outside your own home? What's in your own garden in in your plants that you have? How much time do you have? I'm I'm just here to listen. (laughs) Okay, so um, we're getting past the azalea season, but when I had the azaleas um, in full bloom, I had a lot of butterflies there. I'm seeing wagalias blooming right now. I do have some begonias. I have this one plant called Golden Alexander. Golden Alexander is a native plant, and I have a, a kind of a meadow in my backyard, and that's really done well. I have, uh, what else do I have? I have just lots of different types of flowers that will be coming out throughout the year. I just planted some zinnias. I have parsley blooming, and, and the reason why I plant parsley is for the uh, black swallowtail butterfly, which the caterpillar actually eats 
And last year I was very successful and had lots of caterpillars on that and got to watch the whole life cycle. So it's it's like nature outside. And, and I'm so fortunate that, you know, we have these opportunities to grow all these different plants. So I grow a lot of things, but herbs are actually really good for pollinators, especially when they start flowering, as well as being important food sources. I should have brought on my next door neighbor, a 70-year-old retired newspaper editor named Jim, who on this tiny little one-tenth of an acre plot in Northeast Ohio has probably half of what you just mentioned in the front yard and the backyard. And his problem is that the deer like it, but Uh definitely attracting a lot of pollinators. I typically will look for plants that the deer don't like because we definitely have deer, although I do have hostas. I have to admit I have hostas, and so I'll use some of that deer away spray to keep them away. But I typically try to look for things that the deer don't like, but the pollinators do like. My biggest problem is <laughs> I want to keep planting. So the other day, um, I'm going to go see my father next week, and he's going to be turning 91. He was telling me how much he loves dahlias. And so I've never planted them before. But after seeing them in the neighborhood, I said, oh, I've got to get some of them. So I expect to get some dahlias any day and I'll be planting them as well. And I think that pollinators will like them. But I am very mindful about trying to not have deer friendly plants. And so, for instance, I plant daffodils rather than tulips because deer love tulips. So they don't like the daffodils. So, yeah, I'm really mindful of that. But um Sometimes the deer do come in. They do like daylilies, and I have a lot of daylilies as well. They're so sweet. They're so docile. But come on, guys, quit quit eating everything that we've planted. Yeah. Well, at least the raccoons and possums don't eat them because I have a lot of them, too. So that's all right. But it's fun. I, I love it. It's just it's, it's interesting. And even my, my poor husband, you know, when we go out on walks, I like wildflowers, too. And so lately we've been seeing things like showy orchids and also crested iris. And so as I drag him along, I go, oh, look, let's take a picture. And then I see other people and I go, oh, let me show you the picture. So when you walk, you can see them. So I, I have a lot of fun. My life is very interesting in spite of COVID. Well, when you have so much outdoors, you know, we're more than a year into this. And most of the world has, has come to the realization that if you're outdoors, if you're socially distanced, and in a lot of places, if you're wearing a mask, you can still do a lot of things. So in terms of going out and planting, that's that's a socially distanced pandemic activity, Yeah, it seems like. Well, and one other thing I have to bring up, and okay, these are not pollinators, but one of my favorite insects, and if you could see all the pictures behind me, you would know what I'm talking about, but I love cicadas absolutely love cicadas and these are the ones that come out every 17 years no by the way i think in ohio you're going to be right in the middle of brood 10 i think brood 10 is a little west of me we'll probably take some um, trips to go and look for them but i am super excited about the brood 10 that's coming out and i have lots of people that send me information like here they come and here's something really interesting about cicadas and i think all insects that we need to consider is that insects provide food for a lot of other animals, fish, birds, etc. And one of the predictions from this year, because the brood 10 cicada is going to be so large, they think the bird population in the U.S. is actually going to increase as a result of that. So super exciting. Don't try to control them. They'll, they'll do a little bit of damage to the twigs and things, but don't freak out. But they're just, you know, and you know why they're out every 17 years? Do you know the reason why? Well, I remember that it's just this intense cycle down below, but having not taken a science class in almost 20 years, I I cannot explain it. Well, 17 is an odd number, right? And so normally 
you know, it's a predator prey. And so there's a prey um, increase, the predators increase, but having an odd number, the, the predators are not really geared into or, you know, tuned into when it's, they're going to be increasing. So that's another way for them to survive, but it's, it's going to be massive. And, and I, hopefully you'll get to hear them and see them, but they're, they're the big ones. They're not those the small annuals. And um, actually um, the annuals I save every year, I have them in my freezer. I, I'm sure most people, you know, keep insects in their freezer, but um, <laughs> anyway, but yeah, but I'm super excited. And I, I, go to this one cicada site and last year we were able to see another another brood and it'll tell you the exact location so my husband and i will be taking a couple of trips to go look for cicadas come may i'm so excited (laughs) i remember being a little kid and just sitting in the car in the driveway with my grandma who did not want to get out of the car and walk into the house because she would have had to have crunched over cicadas mm-hmm. for like 40 feet so we just stayed in there and listened to the chirping and my grandma did not want anything to do with it you love it you have how many cicadas in your freezer how many do you keep in there right now katie um i probably have about 20 and what i'm most fascinated is uh, you know i collect i don't collect live ones i collect the dead ones that i find on the street but they're all different sizes so even though they're the same species they're different sizes and it doesn't matter if they're male or female but it's it's yeah it's really fascinating but i I'm lucky that I like these things because, like I said, I'm never bored. But at least everybody has an insect story. I always, when I was studying to become an entomologist, I um, would tell people and they go, really? And then they'd go and tell me some insect story. So I think most people kind of like insects, but they're afraid to admit it. So as folks are ramping up applications this season, Katie, what are some of the reminders that you would like to share that maybe the Growing Matters Coalition as a whole would like to share and just make sure folks have this at the forefront of their mind throughout May, June, July and on. Yeah, thanks. So no matter what product you're using, please, please read the label. The label has a lot of good information. Not all products will cause harm to bees. So I think that's really important. Look into the environmental hazard section. That will tell you whether they're toxic, highly toxic. If there's nothing there, that means they're not toxic. Um, It also has a lot of good information as to what rate to use. Very important because we've studied these rates over 10 years as we're developing labels. It also tells you the timing. In, in some cases, you have to be really mindful of what the economic threshold level is and, you know, whether or not, like, as I mentioned with cicadas, they're not going to cause that much damage. So just leave them alone where some other insects like Japanese beetles will cause some damage. And so it's more important to control them, especially when they eat the entire plant. So that's that's important. Um, also, the interval between applications. So it could be five days, seven days, 14 days. That's important. And as well as um, there's some other information about what type of clothing to wear. So the label is really chock full of information. When I used to write labels, I, I would do more bullet points because I think it's easier to find the information than than that. But yeah, read the label, take a look at it, make sure you understand it and make sure the products are being used properly. How many labels have you written over the years? Oh, probably about 30 different labels. Yeah. Wow. And and the, the most funds were the mixtures. So in other words, if we have two active ingredients together. You have to really be thoughtful about, and this is more in agriculture, but, you know, pre-harvest interval, you know, how many hours it is for re-entry. So you always take the worst case. So I've, I've, I do a lot of analysis on before I write the labels. But yeah, I've written quite a few labels. And also looking at 
what insects are controlled by the product. So in other words, you don't want to put something on a label that the product doesn't control because then the user will be very disappointed. And this was a point of conversation on the last episode in this series as well with Dr. Frank Wong and Dr. Zach Riker, but folks do not read the labels as much as they should. Like this is one of the more important things, actually reading what's in there, reading the proper processes. And, and like you said, when, when there are certain things that are mixed together, you need to be accurate here. What I like about having the mixtures, it makes it easier for the user. So in other words, they don't have to look at two different labels and try to figure out what I've already spent time doing. So that certainly is very helpful is when you have some products. And, and oftentimes, at least with insecticides, you may have one insecticide that works really well against, let's say, caterpillars and, and that type of thing. And you have another insecticide that works against sucking insects such as aphids and, and, and mites. And so you, by putting them together, you get more of a broad spectrum control. But here's the thing which I think is extremely important is it's really important, and this goes to integrated pest management, you need to know what are the bad insects and what are the good insects. Because if you're just out there saying all insects are bad, you're actually probably wasting the application. So I think that's really important. And you also need to know whether or not it's really insect damage or let's say disease damage. Cause I love telling this story and you know, I love it when people come to my house and they give me recommendations about insects cause they don't really know who they're talking to. But, um, <laughs> and I don't tell them either, but you know, I had, I had somebody at my house trimming some bushes one day. It was cherry laurel and they get the, what they call this shot hole disease, which is really a disease. And he was insisting to me that it was caused by an insect and he would come out and spray. And I kept saying, no, it's it's really not an insect. It's really a disease. And spraying for something that is not there doesn't make any sense. And it's really a waste of the product. And then the other thing is, at least around my house, I know, you know, if I have Japanese beetles, I definitely try to control them. But other things, I kind of let them go. And in some of my plants, I have um, praying mantises, which are great predators, you know, wonderful predators. So I have praying mantises out there. I have spiders and everything. So I really believe that you know, where it's necessary, let's use pesticides because it certainly helps the user, but we don't have to use them in every case. And and that's also true about integrated pest management. It's about cultural control. It could be pruning. I had some um, azaleas in my garden a few years ago, and they were getting covered up by mites. And I tried to control them with an miticide. It didn't work. And then I started reading and they said, you know, you really can't control mites. And so you know what I ended up doing? I moved the azaleas to a different location because, first of all, in the garden, I was pruning them too much. and You shouldn't prune azaleas. So I moved them to a different location, and they're doing great, and they're not having all these problems. So even having the plant in the right location is important, not only you know for pest control and everything else. So I think that's, that's a cultural practice that I did. I had my husband do all the digging, but um, it's okay. I had the boss. He's, he's the laborer. But um, I think it's really important to, to know some of these things. And I, and I work with different groups and, you know, they want to know about the insecticides and I'm more than glad to tell them. But I also say, let's think about what other things you can do to maybe, maybe make the plant less, less um, attractive to insects or put it in a place where it really is happier. You know, if it's happy, then it, it won't have the problems. Golf course superintendents, to a large degree, turf managers less so, are able to move things around. They're able to plant things in different areas. So there's a lot of control there. Another area of control for those folks, and a lot of them are listening, is in applying label regulations. 
how can they apply label regulations while also helping impact pollinators in kind of a positive manner? When we write the labels, we write them in such a way so that we, you know, you can use the product safely while not causing harm to pollinators. And so that's where it really talks about that. On some labels, let's say if you're worried, let's say, because we've worked with golf courses that actually bring in honeybees. And so you may have some honeybees out there working. Well, honeybees typically work when it gets a little warmer in the day. And then when it gets closer to the end of the day, they stop working. And so if you know what bees are around, you'll say, okay, I'll spray early in the morning when the bees aren't active or later in the day when the bees aren't active. And so that way I'm mitigating any potential use. Also, a lot of our labels will say, do not spray when the plants are flowering. And so in some cases it's a little tricky because, you know, some plants flower over a long period of time. But in the case of azaleas, you know, they have a distinct flowering season. And then once they finish flowering, then the concern around bees goes away. And I think that's really important. It's about the exposure because some people think all pesticides are causing harm all the time. But if, if there's no flowers out there, you know, you have less concerns around pollinators. Adopting best management practices helps to ensure pollinators are protected and communities continue to have an abundant food supply. The Growing Matters Coalition is reminding producers, golf course superintendents, turf managers, and landowners to be sure to responsibly use neonic products and other crop protection technologies this growing season. Protecting bees and other wildlife is a major part of good stewardship practices and is why the coalition launched Be Sure, an initiative to support producers and applicators in accomplishing this important goal. To download stewardship research, access important tips, and learn more, visit growingmatters.org. You have talked a bunch about just reading and following label requirements. What are some other ways that applicators can ensure that they're really treating pests without negatively impacting pollinators? Obviously, labels, I think first, second, and third on the list, probably. Yeah. Well, you know, years ago, I went to this uh turf workshop and we were talking about pollinators and in my mind it's like turf pollinators how do these things go together well as I learned you know because I'm always learning I think I know everything but I really don't but um as I as I learned in a lot of cases you might have some weeds like dandelions and for golf courses they if they're going to be making an insecticide application the best advice and this is such a simple advice is they mow first so in other words, they move, remove all the flowers and then they make the, the insecticide application. And as it turns out, that's a really good, positive way of doing it. So you can, you know, not worry about the bees, but also be able to control insects. And a lot of times these are insecticides that go into the soil and they'll be c- controlling. I keep talking about Japanese beetles, but, you know, the grubs that are in the ground. And so you really want to control them because they will take out grass. So it, I thought that was a really clever, easy thing to do. And, and homeowners can do that, too. But, you know, we're also advising homeowners in a lot of cases is let the weeds grow, but then they also have to be careful that they're not using insecticides. So I think that's, you know, mow before mow before you apply an insecticide and, you know, you can't go wrong with that. Real quick aside, because as you mentioned, you have brought up Japanese beetles a few <laughs> times and, and they're not everywhere, but what are some of the telltale signs of Japanese beetles if, if folks think they're getting an infestation of Japanese beetles? What should they look out for and what do they need to do? 
Well, you know, first of all, Japanese beetles are not native to the United States. And one of the problems we have, and this is true with a lot of invasive insects, is that they're able to multiply over time. And even though Japanese beetles have been here over 100 years, they're still, the population is still pretty good because they don't have a lot of native predators and parasites. So typically when you see them, they feed in a cluster. They like certain plants. They love roses. Um, they also, I have cana lilies. They absolutely love my cana lilies. I don't know. What, that's where I spray. But, you know, they're, they're, you do, usually you don't see the immatures because, you know, the, the grubs are underneath this turf. And so you see the adults. You also have to be mindful as to when to control because, so for instance, in North Carolina, the recommended time to control the grubs is really in the fall. I lived in Iowa for a few years, and the recommended time to control the grubs there was actually in the spring. But it has to reach, you know, the temperature has, soil temperature has to be a certain temperature because they start moving up. And, um, yeah, but they are, you typically see them in clusters. They will just be feeding and eating and having a great time. And it just, you know, nothing seems to bother them. You can, you know, bat them away. They'll come back. So they're they're kind of annoying. But, you know, I'm I'm worried about a lot of these invasive pests that we have. Let me just one more story about Japanese beetles. So I lived in Iowa for a few years, and when I lived there, they weren't, they had never crossed the Mississippi River. It was amazing. You know, you think after all these years, but now they have. And so in places like Iowa, where they didn't have them before, suddenly when they first appear, they're everywhere. And they, they have a pretty large food source. So that's the other thing about some of these insects. You know, the emerald ash borer, big problem in ash. I think you have them in Ohio. I think, and, and I'm going to see my father next week, and he was telling me that he has some ashes that probably have been killed by the emerald ash borer. And it's the it's same thing in the insect, you know, the larval stage, which is typically the feeding stage, gets inside the plant, and then it just eats it and kills the plant. Now, I told my dad, oh, good, we can pull off the bark and look for him. He's probably not that happy about that, but at the same time, we'll probably have to have some of his ashes cut down by a professional because of the emerald ash borer, which is another example of a pest that came into this country that we don't have any way of controlling. We're constantly, you know, it's never ending. I think I will have a job the rest of my life, but I mean, this is this is a problem that we have to be able to manage the pest and then also keep you know, all of the ornamentals and the trees alive. It's a big job. Pests have adapted from just destroying the Dutch elm to now destroying the ash, which replaced the Dutch elm. And I'm sure whatever replaces the ash, they'll figure out a way to come in and, and destroy that too. What are some of the other pests that a lot of applicators, golf course superintendents, turf managers, landscape professionals should be looking out for? Japanese beetles, emerald ash boards you mentioned. Um, I think in some cases, white flies are a problem. I think you see them more in places like Florida, but white flies tend to go across a lot of different species of plants. I mean, typically when you have um, insects that like lots of different hosts, they're, the, they're more problematic. In some cases, in a lot of cases, you have very specific hosts and plant interactions. But, you know, like I said, in the case of Japanese beetles, in the case of aphids, in the case of um, white flies, that's where they, they like everything. So even milkweed, you know, we're all talking about planting milkweed for monarch butterflies. This friend of mine a couple of years ago said, ooh, I have this disease on my milkweed. And I looked at it and I go, oh, no, no, you do have a disease. It's called sooty mold, but it's actually from the aphids. And so the aphids are eating. They're not very efficient eaters and their excrement is very sugary. And so then the mold grows on the excrement. So I told him, I said, you, you don't control the disease try to control the aphids. But yeah, and the aphids are amazing because you could have like a little patch of milkweed 
in the middle of nowhere and somehow, and these aphids are very specific to milkweed, <laughs> they find them. I don't know how. I've asked my entomology friends because we have these kind of conversations. How do they find it? But somehow they find it and then, you know, you can, you'll see them right away. Now, and I have seen the aphids on the plants when I have monarchs. So what I'll do is I'll just, and they're typically at the top, I'll just take some water and, and shoot, you know, shoot it on that to get rid of them. There's another kind of a culture, it's a mechanical control rather than using insecticides because I am worried a little bit about um, the, the monarch butterfly caterpillar. So I'm trying to, you know, get a balance between the two, but those aphids are bad. <laughs> That's about as simple a solution as you can have is just squirt them with water. Yeah, our water's a great insecticide. You know, if we were trying to register, we probably couldn't because enough water will kill a lot of insects. I mean, you know, typically like with aphids, after a good rainstorm, the population goes down. What else do you want to know? So, I can just spout all sorts of things all day long. Well, so much of our conversation has been about protecting pollinators and behind the pollinators are, are real human beings. How can those human beings, the applicators, make sure that they're staying safe as well? Well, on the on the labels, and each label is a little bit different depending on you know how it's rated from a toxicity point of view, is really look. So in some cases, you may need a whole outfit. We're, we're, we don't like those types of products. We'd rather have products that maybe ha- require a mask or, or goggles and um, gloves, the, the kind of the minimum. Of them. But you have to look at the PPE, which is the personal protective equipment section to know which to use. And that's really important. And, you know, we even work with beekeepers and sometimes they're not paying attention. It's really important to pay attention because, you know, your health is important. PPE, of course, coming into everyday conversations, not just among pesticide applicators or medical professionals over the last year and change. Oh, yes. You know, so so much fun last year when they kept saying PPE and I kept telling my husband, I go, oh, we know what this is because this is what we deal with every day. Suddenly everybody knows. So that, that was interesting and fun. Well, not fun when there was a shortage, but certainly interesting last year. Well, and now at least everybody knows what it is for whatever purpose, you know, for whatever reason in the long haul, but you know, at least they know what the acronym means. Oh yeah. And don't we all have a lot of masks in our house, in our cars, in our coat pockets? I have them everywhere. You know, everywhere I look, I even have one in my uh, pocket right now in my, my pants pocket in case. I have one right here next to the computer. I'll probably never fly without a mask again. I don't oh, ever want to get on a plane without one. Yeah. Me neither. And I'm going on my first plane ride next week after it's been over a year. And I'm a little bit a little bit nervous, but at the same time, I'm, I'm willing to go because I want to see my father, who I haven't seen in a year and a half. That should be a fantastic trip. And obviously looking forward to that for personal and, and probably some professional reasons, too. He'll, he'll take you through the garden and, and everything. What else are you looking forward to in 2021 and in this application season, Katie? Oh, okay. I was going to think about my vacations. Um, the application season, um, certainly um, in June is the uh, pollinator week. And so, we, you know, a lot of discussion around then. Um, I think that's a good time to, for people to even get more engaged. The other thing that I'm excited about, and I have a conversation later on today with a friend of mine um, talking about, you know, FFA and getting students more engaged in pollinators and planting pollinator habitat. And so we've done some of these projects over the years, but I think, teaching children at a young age to really appreciate insects and what they do and some of the benefits, I think is really helpful. I mentioned my 70-year-old neighbor, Jim, who loves to plant. And we have another neighbor who's about four, and Aurora 
who we've just recently met, loves to find bugs and she cares for them. And she'll even like save dead bugs. She may have a career in, in environmental stewardship. Who knows? She's only four. But I, your point about teaching kids the value of nature and, and really just not everything is, is bad. You know, these are great things that I think big picture, that might be one of the biggest, biggest things that, that we talk about. Oh, yeah. I have a three-year-old nephew, and from an early age, he's been completely fascinated by insects, and so I made him his own little book, and I I took a lot of my photos, you know, my best of photos, and created a book for him, and I'll see him next week, too, so I'm, like, super excited, because he's a very personable child, too, and he's just really fun to be around. Before I let you go, Katie, where else can folks go to learn more, whether that's the Growing Matters website or any other resources that, that you rely on? Yeah, you know, the exciting thing for me, especially for golf courses, is, um, you know, I work with a lot of different golf courses and different types of programs. And the golf courses today have lots of pollinator resources available. And it explains, you know, how, how to plant, what to plant, all of that. And there's the GCSAA pollinator resources. USGA also has the practical pollinator programs. And so, you know, if you're if you're thinking, oh, it's all about agriculture, no, it's it's about golf courses too. And I would highly recommend going looking at some of those resources because I think they've done a really great job putting them together, simplifying it. They even have best management practices too, relative to you know things I've been talking about. So I'm super excited that you know everybody is getting into this, and it's 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 really great. Don't forget, there's a lot of good information about pollinator stewardship at the GrowingMatters.org website. So please, in addition to visiting all the great um, golf course websites, please visit GrowingMatters.org. And I'm just thinking what else. Oh, we worked. I'm going to be in trouble if I don't mention this. But we have Operation Pollinator, which is our our program that we use both in golf courses and agriculture. And we've had really great success with the golf courses over the years, you know, because we we're promoting these practices to plant flowers in out of out of play areas, as well as, you know, in some golf courses, as I mentioned, they have honeybees now. They're doing some other things. They have tours through to help some of the kids. So I think a lot of these programs are great. And we've also been working with um, Audubon Society on the monarchs in the rough. And so they've actually been planting monarch habitat in out of play areas and golf courses too. So we like to collaborate with whoever whoever we can, you know, so there's more pollinator habitat in the golf courses as well. That's awesome. And I know this is an audio only podcast that folks are are listening to. We are face to face on a video chat. And so I can see what you're wearing and you are wearing a gray t-shirt with at least three ladybugs on it. How many, how many pieces of clothing, how many t-shirts or or other things are in your wardrobe that have various insects (laughs) and other pollinators on them? Well, a lot in my clothing. Every room okay. in my house has a picture. You know, like I said, I have lots of photos here. Every room in my house has different things. I have, a, you probably can't see it, but I also have a dragonfly. I can barely see it. A dragonfly lamp everywhere I have things. So like I said, I have a great husband who puts up with a lot of this. But yeah, I'm just completely fascinated by insects. I will be my entire life. And, and you know, even after I retire, I'm going to continue because it's just so fascinating. And I plan fingers crossed, to go to Panama in December, because hopefully by then everything will be good, and go on a butterfly tour. And I've been there before. I love Panama. It's a great place. And um, I'm going to go to this one place that's kind of a camp where in addition to butterflies, they have, I don't know, those um, howler monkeys. Have you ever ever heard of howler monkey? 
they're, I've never seen one, but I'm, I've heard of them. Yeah. They are so loud. And the first time I was in this camp, and it's really not camping, it's glamping. That's my style. I heard a howler monkey in the morning and it was wild. And it's the males that are saying, this is my territory, stay the heck out. But yeah, it's just really fascinating to be in those circumstances. And, and Panama is generally, it's it's a safe place. It's really, um, you know, because of the Panama Canal, it's, you know, the U.S. really watches over Panama and it's really, it's a really wonderful country. So I love going there. And the uh, person that started some of the places that I go to, he used to be part of the government, you know, and his, his father, you know, his grandfather, great grandfather actually helped establish Panama as a country. But after he got out of the government, he's now turned a number of locations that the family owned the land into these um, ecotourism, which I think is wonderful. So I, I really want to you know, be promoting ecotourism around the world if I can. So fingers crossed I'll be in Panama in December. That's fantastic. That would be a great trip. And I will leave you with this. You have a three-year-old nephew. I have a four-year-old daughter. Who would be louder, do you think, a child under five or a howler monkey? Um, howler monkeys are pretty darn loud. Yeah, and okay. I, ha- I have a YouTube video, if you want to go and look at my YouTube channel, about um, the Darien, the camp in Darien, um, Panama. And I, I have the howler monkey there. It's not the first one I heard, but I still was able to capture the sound. So if you really want to look at my YouTube videos, go for it. I will find it. If folks want to listen to that or watch the video, what is your YouTube account? Katie Savinelli. <laughs> oh, just your name. And, and have, in case I, folks are just listening, C-A-Y-D-E-E-S-A-V-I-N-E-L-L-I. Correct. And I also have a really good one. I have a, I have two field cameras outside my house. And a few years ago, we had two bucks, like big bucks, at, at um, our bird baths. And so they're kind of fun, too. So that's that's another one that I find. And then I have some other, you know, monarch butterflies and things. And yeah, you'll see my husband's. He's got some railroad. They're more popular than mine. But and I do have a couple cicadas. So don't, don't forget the cicadas. Always circling back to the cicadas in the 17 years. I know. It's an obsession. Okay. But luckily, people don't really know who I am, but it's good. But thank you so much. I really appreciate it. I look forward to this conversation every year. I hope we can continue. Katie Savinelli, environmental stewardship team lead with Syngenta, also just a champion for pollinator health. Great to have you back on the podcast this year. Let's do it again in 2022. And if everything goes as planned, we can absolutely talk about the butterfly trip to Panama on this episode next year. I'm already looking forward to it. Be careful what you wish for, but yeah, thanks.